Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Would you join me in prayer? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we ask that you may bless the reading and preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Every now and again, there's a court trial that grips the nation, a trial that everyone can't help but speak about, and it's on the lips of everyone trying to figure out who done it, are they guilty, are they not? Perhaps one of the most famous ones is the trial of Lindy Chamberlain um, in WA. Uh, at the time, about 20, 30 years ago, they were camping as a family, and suddenly in the night she saw, her report was, that a dingo had gotten into her tent and tragically taken the baby by the neck and taken it out into the bush area. It was a horrific scene and she was crying and screaming and everyone was, you know, trying to figure out what happened. A massive search party went on for days and days. But then progressively over time as it went to the media and the media started to portray it and then it went into the court system, eventually the story was disbelieved by most of the public. Um, if you were around at the time, or perhaps if, like me, you studied it during geography at high school, or history rather, you would have seen, um, you know, the various reports. The crowds, the peoples were crying out, she's guilty, she's guilty, she's guilty. She murdered her own baby. She's part of a weird cult. She's got all this wrong with her. She was imprisoned. Her babies were taken away. She was pregnant at the time that she was put into jail. That baby was taken from her. But later, through more police work and investigation, it was proved that she was innocent, that a dingo really had taken her baby and that she was the innocent one, though she stood condemned. The injustice never could be righted there's never a sense which Lindy got her life back after all those years in jail, separation from her children. And the public today still think, they still make their judgment, she should be condemned. She did it. As we come to this text today, we clearly have before us a contentious court scene, a trial that grips not so much the nation because it's a secret trial, but it's one that seems all so conspired and, and it's all kind of working against Jesus. And there's much in this text we could focus in on, but I want to limit our time and I want to limit the attention to just the trial of Jesus in this text. And I want to ask just one question of our passage this morning, one crucial, crucial question. A question that at first will seem so simply answered by the text but as we will come to see, will lead to so much more. And here's the question. Why was Jesus condemned to death? Why was Jesus condemned to death? Well, let's make our way to answering that question by providing a bit of context to where we're at. Um, and if 
if you're getting a bit hot, maybe we can, oh, the aircon is on, there you go. Maybe it's just me getting hot. Woo. I want to back up a little bit and just remind us where we're at in the life of Jesus as we approach Easter. He's just had the Last Supper. He's taken the body, his bre- the bread, and broken it. He's taken the cup and said, this is my body, this is my blood shed for you. He sent Judas out to betray him. He knew it was going to happen. He's washed the disciples' feet. He's predicted to the disciples that they're all going to betray him. He, he enters the Garden of Gethsemane, as we saw last week, and he staggers and falls on his face before God, shuddering at the thought of bearing not death, but the wrath of God. That's why Jesus collapsed in the Garden. That's why Jesus staggered, because he, he was being faced with his destiny to drink the cup of God's wrath. Jesus said to his disciples in that garden, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. He asked his closest three disciples to stay with him and pray, yet they fall asleep. And while the disciples sleep, Judas is procuring a band of soldiers and making his way to the garden. Jesus says, rise, let us go. My betrayer is at hand and Judas arrives. And as we saw in the reading, he comes with this band of soldiers. They obviously thought maybe there was going to be some form of revolt. And we saw Peter have a go, lob of an ear. And he betrays Judas with the coldest of signs, doesn't he? Calls him rabbi and affectionately kisses him on the cheek. Obviously where we get the expression a Judas kiss from one of his best friends, one of his companions for three years, and the way that Judas decides to identify Jesus to this soldier crew is through a kiss. Tells us something about Jesus, that even Jesus wasn't that recognisable. That perhaps if Jesus in Galilee in that time was to walk into our church, we wouldn't notice. He clearly wasn't shining bright. He clearly didn't have a halo on top of his head. He wasn't blonde hair and blue eyes. That would have stuck him out. They would have been like, oh, it's the blonde hair, blue eye guy, <laughs> like all the paintings say. But no, Jesus was just common, ordinary. So Judas has to identify him. And then after this altercation with Malchus's ear getting chopped off and it's actually Peter that does it and we learn in Luke's gospel that Jesus heals the ear and says, you know, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. This tragic line comes and I think it's, it's one of the most tragic lines again. I've said that a few times as I've been preaching but verse 56b, then all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus is arrested, he's bound, he's betrayed Peter makes a stand and then they quickly, they leg it. They run off into the night and I I wonder what went through their heads as they pant and run through the Garden of Gethsemane, fleeing from these soldiers. When they finally came to a stop, I wonder what went through their head. Perhaps they still had the taste of the unleavened bread and the lamb and the wine in their mouth. Perhaps they could still smell their clean feet that Jesus had just washed. And now, there they are, panting, hiding, fearful, and fleeing from their Lord and Master, the one that they all declared that they would be with him till the end. Matthew records in verse 57 and 58 the rest. 
Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Caiaphas is the high priest. He's the leader of the the sect called the Sadducees and the leader of the Sanhedrin, the ruling elite in Israel. And Peter comes to, he can't flee forever. Peter is like, he's torn. He wants to see, he can't can't be there because he's too afraid, but he can't not be there because he can't leave his Lord. And so Peter's there and he's in the courtyard and perhaps overhearing the trial that goes on. The one that declared, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you, said Peter, just a few hours before. And yet, as we saw in the reading, all it takes is the steely gaze of a servant girl and Peter folds, just like that. Not just once, but a second time he declares with an oath he does not know Jesus. And then finally, he he pours a curse upon himself. He invokes a curse upon himself, so afraid he is of being united with Jesus in that moment. The rooster crows, as Jesus said it would. He's awakened to his fall and he weeps bitterly. So that's the setting up of the scene that we have before us. It's a vivid and horrible scene. But now I want us to enter the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest, and see the court case of Jesus and watch him on trial. And I want us to return to that question and ask, why was Jesus condemned to death? Verse 59 to 60. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. This is clearly not a um, fair trial. This is one of those trials where the mobs outside, you know, so to speak, even um, you see them sometimes happen where if the jury says not guilty, there's going to be a riot. And so the chief priests are coming together and they're, they're trying to make sure this is a guilty verdict. They're bringing together witnesses. And there's, there's 71 people in the Sanhedrin. So not all of them are probably totally corrupt. And so they can't just come out and have total lies. They, need, they still need some kind of witness where two, more, two witnesses can agree on something that they can charge Jesus with and legitimately get the whole council to vote and put Jesus to death. So they still need some sort of a trial, some sort of a you know, persuasive text, a persuasive speech to do it. And at last, we learn that two come forward in verse 61 and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. They've found their charge. Now, in Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 17 tells us that you need two witnesses to establish a a death, uh, a, a crime that would lead to death. And in fact, all crimes need the witnesses of two. And so they take a saying of Jesus that occurred at the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2, when he'd gone to the temple and cleared it the first time where Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They change it to say, Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple and to rebuild it in three days. Now, interestingly, that saying of Jesus comes true in two ways. When Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, he was talking about his body. 
Because the temple is the presence of God. The temple is where earth and heaven come together, where God chooses to bless and dwell with his people. And Jesus is the temple. He's a walking temple. And so upon his death, Jesus is the temple that is destroyed. And on his resurrection, the temple is rebuilt. But then it ultimately comes true in AD 70 when the physical temple of Israel is destroyed by the Romans. And so there's a lot of things going on here. But to say that you would destroy the temple was a capital punishment. To destroy the temple would be to say, I'm, like, in effect, I'm trying to kill God. I'm trying to kill our religion, our ability to commune with God. And so, verse 62, the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Isn't that interesting? You've got these lies being spewed forth. We don't know how long this trial went on, witness after witness, all these witnesses that don't agree. And then even this final one, it's not even true, ultimately what they're saying. But Jesus doesn't fight back, doesn't stand up for his honour, honor rather, but remains silent. Jesus did that to fulfil prophecy. Like he said in the garden, that the words of the prophets might be fulfilled. Isaiah 53 verse 7 says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is in complete control in this scenario. He's on trial, but he's not out of control. The high priest, now he's coming in and he's trying to bring this to a close. He wants Jesus to make an answer. He wants Jesus to incriminate himself. You know, you get a criminal talking long enough and they might say something that you can pin on them. And so the high priest invokes this. He calls him. He basically has to answer when he says this. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. After three years of ministry, after three years of Jesus trying to keep the secret of his identity um, secret, a mystery, he wasn't trying to tell everyone he was the Christ. He only told the disciples. Often demons would cry out, you are the son of the living God, and he would tell them to be silent. But now, throughout the whole gospel, we've been waiting for Jesus to go public, and here it happens. Before the high priests, before the elders of the people, they ask him, are you the Christ, the Son of God? That is, are you the promised Messiah, the one that was predicted throughout the Old Testament all the way from Genesis through the law into David and the prophets? Are you the Son of God? Are you the one who has come to free our people? And in a sense, you could imagine all the universe holding its breath. All the angels and demons holding their breath. They've been watching this story. They've been watching history unfold. They've been seeing it happen. They're, they've been waiting. They've seen Adam and Eve in the garden, Noah, Moses, Isaac, Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, everything. They've seen it all happen and they're waiting. What will Jesus say? This is the moment. If he answers in the negative, he's a free man. The, the cup passes. Well, Jesus says to him, verse 64, you have said so, or in Mark's gospel, I am. 
But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It's a, sort of a strange answer for us as we look at it. Most likely, Matthew changes what Jesus says there to sort of work with what the high priest thinks he's saying. The high priest probably had a wrong idea of what the Christ and the Son of the living God was. And so Jesus says, you have said so. You've said it. I'm not denying it. But, and he goes on to further clarify what it means to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he takes the claim from Christ, Son of the living God, and elevates it to something, you know, irrefutably glorious. He uses two Old Testament quotations. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is saying, I am that one. Who could the Lord God say to my Lord? How could David say he had a Lord and the Lord? Oh, God, Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Who could God say, sit at my right hand to other than his own son. Daniel chapter 7 talks about the clouds. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, notice that's what Jesus says, there came one like one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So Jesus is using these two Old Testament quotations to say, I'm the one, it's me. And they knew those verses. They were awaiting the fulfillment of those verses. And this image of one coming on the clouds of heaven, this is an image of Christ ascending to the throne. And when Christ ascends to the throne is upon his ascension into heaven. So he dies, he resurrects, 40 days later he ascends into heaven. That's when Daniel 7 comes into play. That's when he's seated on his throne and he receives his kingdom in part. And then one day, as we sung today, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess across all the lands, all the nations, all the languages that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then that passage will be fulfilled. The high priest knew what was happening. Verse 65, he tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. So the high priest brings the formal charge. This is the moment. You are charged with blasphemy. To misuse or to misinvoke the name of God. To declare yourself equal with God. To declare yourself this exalted figure. <laughs> Could you imagine the, the contrast? Jesus, who's probably already been beaten a little bit by the soldiers, potentially grimy, dirty. He's been bleeding in his prayer. He's sweaty. He's tired. It's the mid-morning. And he's saying, I am the son of man that will be seated in the clouds of heaven next to the ancient of days. Couldn't be further from what it appears. And so he says, this is blasphemy. And he asks the council, imagine potentially 71 or somewhere between 23 and 71 men there. And he says to them, what is your judgment? You've heard the case. What's your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. The crucial question and answer, and the sentence is rendered. And it begs the question this morning of you. As you've investigated Jesus, you've thought about Jesus, 
If Caiaphas was to ask you, what is your judgment? What would you reply? Would you say he's the Christ, the son of the living God? Or would you say he's a blasphemer? It's not true. We're only left with two options. It's either true or not true. It's either true or not true. He's either, you either believe or you declare him a blasphemer. There's no other way of going about it. And if you declare him a, a blasphemer or a liar, then you should have nothing to do with him. You should have nothing to do with Jesus of Nazareth if he's lying or deceived. He's not a good moral teacher. He tells everyone to worship him and follow him. He tells everyone to obey him. If he's not who he says he is, you shouldn't follow him at all. But if he is who he says he is, then you should follow him and obey him and fall before him because he's the son of man, the Christ, the son of the living God. They choose blasphemy. They choose death. Now, if they had have actually continued their court case, if they had have investigated Jesus properly, they would have found that actually all the Old Testament scriptures start to actually line up in favour of him being the Messiah. We don't have time to go through it this morning, but if you go through them, you know, scripture after scripture, after prophecy, after prophecy, you start to tick them off and you're like, oh, it's him. It's him, it's him, born in Nazareth, oh, born in Bethlehem, oh, uh, sorry, born in Bethlehem, from Nazareth, uh, you know, son of God, uh, baptized, yeah, all these things, they, they line up, but yet they close the trial there. But they don't just close the trial there, they close it in complete contempt. It's hard to read. I always find it very difficult to read these verses. And the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, our King, the one we love, the one who died to save us. Verse 67 and 68. Then they spit in his face. John tells us that they blindfolded him first, so he can't see, and they're, they're spitting. The one who created saliva glands is being spat upon. And they strike him. The one who made the blind see is now blind. And they slap him. And they mock him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? It's a ghastly, horrendous scene. So we come back to the question. Why was Jesus condemned to death? We've seen the betrayal of Judas. It's part of the answer. We've seen the corrupt courtroom. It's part of the answer. We've seen their charge, blasphemy, claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God. That's, that's part of the answer, but it still does not fully answer the question. Why was Jesus condemned to death? Well, the reality is it's not ultimately because of Judas. It's not ultimately because of their shadowy trial, because of their sentencing. It's not even ultimately because of what will happen next week with Pilate condemning him to death. No, we read at any moment Jesus could have aborted the whole process. He could have rejected the cup. He could have overthrown the guard, obliterated the council with his 12 legions of army, wiped out the whole Roman Empire. So why does he stand there silent? 
Why does he stand there and allow them to judge him? Why does he stand there and be convicted of sin as a blasphemer? Why does he stand there and allow them to sentence him to death? Why does he stand there and allow them to blindfold him, spit on his face, strike him, slap him and mock him? Well, the answer to our question is well captured by the famous hymn, Man of Sorrows by Philip Bliss. Not the Hillsong version, the the original. Man of Sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a saviour. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a saviour. It is those words, in my place condemned he stood, which ultimately answers the question. Why was Jesus condemned to death? In my place, condemned, he stood. He is condemned to death for us. He is condemned to death because of us. He is condemned to death to save us. He is condemned to death because of divine love for us. In my place, condemned, he stood. He, the innocent one, the one who ironically is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the glorious one, the perfect and blessed one, is condemned to death as a blasphemer, as a sinner, so that he can stand condemned so that we never will be. You see, we should be on trial, not him. We should have to face the court. We are the ones who deserve the pronouncement of law breaker, breaking God's holy and moral law. We're the ones that should have the guilty sentence written over our lives, shouldn't we? All of us. No one can pretend like it's not true. Liar. Blasphemer. Adulterer. Idolater. Murderer. And even if we were the best of the disciples, like Peter, guilty for denying Christ, we deserve the sentence of death for our sins. We deserve the blindfolding. We deserve the mocking. We deserve the spitting, the beating, the striking and the cursing, the guilt and the shame. But the good news is, is that in my place, condemned he stood. (laughs) In our place, church, condemned he stood. In your place, condemned he stood. Chuck Colson tells a story of World War II in one of the POW camps that there was a bunch of prisoners of war and they, they had a job of digging and shoveling and they each had a shovel and they were responsible for their shovel. At the end of the day, they had to return the shovel and the guards would come in and count how many shovels were there. And at the end of the day, the guard came in and there were 19 shovels when there were meant to be 20. And the guards started berating the entire group, calling out, 
Who has left their shovel? Who has lost their shovel? Who is the guilty one? No one answers. No one bravely steps forward. Eventually, incensed by his anger and wrath, the guard yells, I will shoot five men today if no one comes forward. Silence hangs in this dirty, dungy, smelly room until one young man steps forward. The guard takes him to the side and shoots him in the head. Later, the other prisoners of war counted the shovels and there were 20 there. This young man took upon himself the guilty verdict in place of the 20 or the 19 so that they would be saved. Condemned he stood, murdered was he, so that the others would walk free. It's a picture, a human picture, a story of what Christ truly did for us. He stood there condemned, silent, allowing the mocking and the abuse to come upon himself so that we would never be condemned before God. This is a vital doctrine. It's a doctrine that theologians call penal substitutionary atonement. It's often abused, it's often discarded, it's often seen as barbaric. But the reality is, is that it's a doctrine we must believe, otherwise we have no eternal hope. Penal means penalty, legal. Jesus truly was given the guilty verdict and condemned. Substitutionary, in our place, he really subs in for you and I, and upon him is the guilty verdict so that we don't have to have it. And that final word, atonement, means at one with Godman. We were separated. We deserve the condemnation. And through Jesus being the penal substitutionary sacrifice, we are made at one with God. It's a glorious and beautiful truth. So friends... If you were to stand before God today and have to give an account for all of your life, all your words, all your deeds, all your thoughts and all that you should have done and left undone, how do you think you would fare in that trial? I don't think it would be hard to get true witnesses rather than false ones for me. I don't think it would be difficult to mount a case against me that I am guilty of breaking God's law and therefore deserving of God's punishment, God's righteous punishment of sin. Now, it obviously depends on the standard that God uses, right? Well, the standard that God will use to judge us is moral perfection. And not just moral perfection in terms of ticking off, well, I've never murdered anyone this week, I don't think. The moral perfection that God requires is true moral perfection. To give true praise and honour and glory where it's most deserved, therefore to God himself. That's why the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. How have you gone with that in your entire life? Every minute of your being glorifying, believing, loving, worshipping, serving Almighty God. None of us could honestly stand here confidently and boldly even here and say that we have, let alone before God on that final day in that courtroom. 
We may deceive ourselves now and say, I'm not that bad. You may think God will be lenient and let us off. Or you may mount a trial. I've tried my best, but God will have none of it. We all stand condemned, even self-condemned. None of us would post on Facebook today, follow my exact life. Everything I've done this week is really good. Like I am the way, the truth and the life. Anyone who comes to me, you know, has an access to the Father. Follow me. Copy my parenting. <laughs> Copy my work life. Copy my recreational habits. We condemn ourselves and we're condemned before God. But we're not hopelessly condemned because Jesus was condemned for us. Because there is a substitute, one who can stand in our place. And so we can boldly invoke his name. The mighty name of Jesus. He comes into the courtroom and like that young man who stood forward even when he was not guilty and received the punishment for us. So that we, the guilty ones, may go free and finally and fully free. It's worth asking ourselves all the deep question this morning. Have you invoked the name of Jesus in your trial? Is he your substitute to take the penalty for your sins so that you can be at one with God? Have you put your faith in him? Truly, today, have you, are you certain? Put your faith in him and him alone and God will declare you innocent. You will be justified in God's sight. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. We can say those words confidently. Even if we've had a dreadful week of sin and failure. We can revel in this reality. We can relax into this reality. We can realise this reality. And better yet, we can stand in this reality because he stood condemned for us. We can stand in the sight of God with confidence and assurance, knowing we don't have to hide from God anymore because he was condemned in our place to death. He died the death we should have died. He rose again to give us new life. And now we can breathe again. If your sins hang heavy on you, come again to Jesus. If you've never yet released all of your sins to God and asked for forgiveness, come to Jesus today and we'll baptise you next Sunday. When Satan accuses you, when the lies come, when the condemnation rises, sing out, in my place condemned he stood. In my place condemned he stood stood. Though you be as wicked as Judas, as wretched as Caiaphas, as brutal as the guards, or as cowardly as Peter, if you call on the name of Jesus as your defence, then in your place condemned he stood. So why was Jesus condemned to death? Well, all those things that took place in the story, but ultimately, ultimately, it was for you. It was for me. It was for all who call upon the name of Jesus from east to west, north to south, through all time. And Peter, the one who fled and denied Christ, 
cursing himself. He was liberated from his condemnation because he repented of his sins. He came back to Christ. It didn't hang over him. He wasn't eternally separated like Judas was because Judas never repented. And Peter writes this in his letter to the churches, and I'll close with this verse. 1 Peter 3.18. This is the words of a man who was condemned, now is free. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. This is good news. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this is our one hope. We've got nothing else. We may have lovely lives. We may have lots of nice travel, beautiful family experiences, great food, coffee, fun, thrills. But if we don't have your son Christ standing in our place, all that awaits us is judgment, and rightly so. Lord, would you help us to rest in him today, to have the burden lifted, to know our sins are paid for, to know that we are innocent in your sight, declared righteous. And would that lead us to live righteously, to now want to live as free, to live holy and beautiful lives, loving you with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength and loving our neighbour as ourselves. And Lord, would you help us to share the goodness of this message, to share this reality, even though it sounds brutal and it sounds hard and negative in our world, would we tell people the truth? That because you so love the world, you sent your one and only son so that whoever should believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And in Jesus' good name, our Saviour, the condemned one, we pray. Amen.